Let us pray. Our great God and Father, we thank you for those uh, great truths that are uh, contained there in the creed, this uh, affirmation of the church down through the centuries. You are our maker, maker of heaven and earth, of all things seen and unseen, and we are your creatures. We thank you that you made a world that you who are fully contained within love, with community within the Godhead, should share that love which you uh, shared with your one and only, that you should share that with the world that you've made, a world to receive your attention and your affection, your care, your providence. So we as your creatures acknowledge you as our maker and we bow before you. And we thank you that this one and only who was in your very embrace, in your closest possible embrace, gazing into your face and uh, receiving your gaze to him, one who knew your love should enter into our story, enter into this world you had made, that he should give up his glory and humble himself, even to the extent of entering not into a royal palace, but into a womb, a virgin womb, for nine months of darkness, that container of the uncontainable, and so fully identify with the human story. We thank you for his faithfulness to you, for the love and the compassion that he showed to all around, and that he was faithful all the way to the cross, to rejection, but remain loyal to you. And thank you that you have vindicated that loyalty by raising him from the dead, exalting him high at your right hand. So now we can acclaim him as king and as our Lord. We thank you that you have brought us to hear the good news that he is Lord and have brought us to confess that on our lips and to believe in our hearts that you have indeed raised him from the dead and that birthed new life. So we thank you for the new life that you give us in Christ. Thank you for the work of your spirit in us to transform us. And we pray that that would continue as you mold us and shape us to be more and more like the Lord Jesus. We do and pray, indeed pray, that we would become more and more like him. And Father, you've made us a community, a communion of saints, brothers and sisters together in a new family, bound together in Christ by your spirit. And may we grow into that reality more and more, day by day, week by week, uh, as a new loving family, uh, enjoying life together. So we thank you for all this that you have done and the new status that you've given us, the new identity you've given us, being your people. We thank you for the forgiveness of sins, that you've put our past behind us and look upon us with favor, with kindness, with generosity, with compassion and mercy. You are indeed a great God. And Father, as we look around, we see that there is much that is not right. As the pandemic continues to rage on, uh, many are suffering uh, the trauma from the pandemic and from COVID. And it seems that uh, with a spike in cases, all of us know people now who have, uh, uh, have suffered under COVID and uh, we're weary. We pray that you'd sustain us, that you'd heal those who are ill. Pray particularly for uh, medical staff that you'd sustain them 
and especially those who are here part of this body. You'd keep them going. And um, Father, we uh, entrust ourselves to you and to your care. You know what the future and what is going on. And we pray that you give us endurance and that in our endurance that we would have hope and that we'd be continued to be loving and faithful to one another and to all those around. Father, we are your people, uh, the people of your pleasure, and we are gathered here in your presence uh, to gaze upon you, to bring you our worship, and to hear from you. So we pray that you would speak through Eugene uh, as he brings your word from uh, Colossians. Be with him and be with us. May our ears and heart be open. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now this morning, Eugene is carrying on his series in Colossians chapter 1. Uh, with week chapter th uh, three, week three. And uh, throughout this month, instead of a scripture reading to prepare us for his message, uh, we're using the Apostles' Creed in preparation. And uh, this morning at this uh, 10.30 service, to assist us in this, we have three of our fourth and fifth graders who will lead us in the Apostles' Creed. So we've got uh, Ryan and Josiah and Mary. So come on up, please. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe, I believe in, in the Holy Spirit, Spirit the, the Holy Universal Church, Church the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of the sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Good morning, brothers and sisters of PBCC. It's really been such a joy and honor to share with you from the Word of God uh, each of these Sundays in the month of January. We're at week three, which means we're about halfway through. And I just wanted to say how much I appreciate all of your support, all the support that you've shown me. Really as a new kid on the block, thank you for your kindness. Uh, the emails, the brief conversations that we've had, um, you know, sometimes in the hallway, just outside of my office, I, I really welcome and cherish those moments. So thank you so much for that. Um, yeah, uh, I do have to begin today's sermon, however, with, with a bit of a problem. And it's a problem that I have, a problem really for every teacher of the Bible or really of, for every teacher of any subject material. Um, and, and that is the problem of metaphor. Metaphors are perhaps the most useful tool in the teacher's toolbox. And in fact, I just used a metaphor right there. Um, so it's hard to get away from. What better way to explain something though, right, than to point to something that's easier to understand, something simpler to understand. But the strength of metaphors is really also their biggest weakness. Metaphors tend to reduce something very complex to something simpler, and along the way, there's always something that's lost in translation. Last Sunday, for example, I use the metaphor of the Shiksalab crater to illustrate the impact of Christ on our lives. And I, I think it works, I think it works mostly, uh, but there are a number of problems that it introduces the more you think about it. I mean, first, the Lord Jesus Christ isn't a giant rock floating in space out to kill dinosaurs. Not really sure that needs to be said, but I, I just wanted to put it out there in case, you know. 
Second, you know, the image of an asteroid colliding with the Earth and just utterly destroying life where it lands, that's almost the very opposite of what Christ does in our lives. I mean, he creates life. He doesn't destroy it in us. You know, he creates life where it doesn't exist. And again, this is probably pretty obvious, I hope, um, but still worth saying, worth noting anyway. The third issue, though, is really probably the most significant. It's the Achilles heel of this particular metaphor. The Shiksalab crater metaphor, it fails to capture arguably the most essential aspect of the impact of Christ. We used it last week to talk about faith, hope, and love as the impact left by Christ in our lives, but this metaphor, the Shiksalab crater, really fails to capture perhaps the most important aspect of faith, hope, and love, and that is that they must continue to grow in order to be considered genuine. The impact that left the Shiksalab crater was over in a moment, um, and if anything, really, over the eons, it's become hidden under layers of rock and sediment and soil and plant growth. And of course, as we saw last week, over half of it is just covered in the ocean. So it's very hard to see, isn't it? But faith, hope, and love, they are, they are neither instant nor temporary. They endure, they last, they grow. So today, I, I'd like to offer another gigantic hole in the ground as a better or perhaps at least different metaphor for the impact of Christ. And that is what you're seeing there on the screen, the Yarlung Zangpo Grand Canyon. Now, I didn't know about this Grand Canyon until this past week. And I discovered, though, in my research that as grand as our Grand Canyon is in the United States, this canyon in northern Tibet is even grander, stretching over 313 miles the Yarlung Zangpo Grand Canyon is by many metrics the largest canyon in the entire planet. It boasts a maximum depth of three and three quarter miles straight down, more than three times the depth of our Grand Canyon. And although it isn't quite as deep as the Shiksalab Crater, it covers about the same area, about 6,600 square miles. But what impresses me the most about the Yarlung Zangpo Grand Canyon is the way that it was formed. Erosion. No sudden impacts, no asteroids, no cosmic collisions, really just time. Over untold eons, the Yarlung Zangpo River snaked its way through the region, eroding the earth, lifting away silt and gravel, carrying in its current layers of rock and stone, coursing against the bedrock, making it subtle, marks patiently, gently, but unceasingly. And as this river flowed, the land around it changed, giving way to its persistence until all that was left was what has lasted to this day. I've been slowly convinced that the erosion at work is a more accurate portrayal of Christian life than an asteroid impact. And perhaps you'll agree with me by the end of the sermon and along the way, we might even find an even better metaphor as we return to the first chapter of the Apostle Paul's letter to the Colossians and press deeper into its body. As we saw last week, Paul opened the letter's body with a word of thanksgiving. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Colossians 1.3. The reason for Paul's gratitude was the impact Christ had made on the Colossian believers' lives as he shows us in verses four and five. We heard of your faith in Christ Jesus 
and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Christ's impact on the Colossian believers showed up in their faith, hope, and love. And because Paul knew these things could not be produced apart from the grace of God, he could not help but thank God whenever he prayed for the Colossians. And that raises a question for us. What did Paul pray for the Colossians? What was he asking of God on their behalf? Given all the growth the Colossian believers had already demonstrated, considering the impact of Christ already evident in their lives, we might wonder, what do you pray for people who already have everything? Well, Paul, ever the pastor, he knew exactly what to pray for people who seemed to already have everything. And fortunately, he shared the content of his prayer in the second paragraph of the letter, verses 9 through 14, which is our passage for today. Paul began this paragraph encouraging the Colossian believers that though they hadn't met in person, they were nonetheless always on his heart. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Paul's relentlessness in prayer suggests two things for us. First, it points to Paul's love for the Colossian believers, even, even at a distance. But secondly, it underscores the importance of what he was praying for them. Whatever he was asking of God on their behalf was something that they simply could not do without. And because he loved the Colossian believers, Paul asked for this one thing on their behalf without ceasing again and again and again. And verse 9 tells us what that one thing was. We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Of the many things I'm sure Paul prayed for the Colossian believers, this was the prayer that he felt compelled to share with them. The prayer that we can safely assume was his primary, consistent prayer on the Colossian believers' behalf. So let's try and digest this prayer a little bit, starting with the phrase, his will, or God's will. This phrase, his will, God's will, seems to have taken on a meaning in contemporary Christian culture that is a bit narrower and more personalized than I believe Paul intended in verse 9. Many people wonder what God's will is, and by that they really mean specifically for their own lives. What does God want me to study? You know, what job does God want me to pursue? What city does God want me to live in? Who, who does God want me to marry, if anyone at all? But in this context, the phrase points to something much bigger. Though it does include wisdom for specific decisions, this phrase is really about the bigger picture of God's plan for this world and for everyone in it. So it's really not about us. It's really about him. God's will refers to God's work in this world, work that he ultimately accomplishes through Christ Jesus. In other words, all that is revealed to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul's prayer for the Colossian believers was that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's purposes, which he accomplishes through Christ Jesus, and that they would be able to comprehend these things, not, not merely intellectually, but in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. In other words, at the level of life-changing depth and clarity that only the Holy Spirit can bring us to. 
You see, this is the relationship between knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge is about comprehending the facts of life, while wisdom is about using those facts to navigate life. Knowledge is seeing the map, seeing the big picture, while wisdom is using that knowledge to get to your destination. And what was the Colossians' destination? What was the purpose for all this? Well, in verse 10 we read, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Paul prayed for the Colossians to be filled with the knowledge of God's will and for that knowledge to influence the way they navigated life so that the final result would be them walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Walking was Paul's favorite metaphor for a person's lifestyle. In the 88 times the Greek word appears in the New Testament, 30 of them appear in Paul's writings. And in every one of those appearances, the word is used as a metaphor for how someone lives their life, how someone behaves, not just in individual choices, but across the lifestyle trajectory those choices comprise. To summarize then, Paul prayed for the Colossians to know the truth of God so that they would walk true to Christ. He prayed that they would understand God's purposes and plans and priorities for the world in Christ so that they would live lives shaped by them. He prayed that they would remember the gospel so that they would make their decisions and choices in a way that reflected the reality of the gospel, the reality of Christ, his gravity and gravitational pull, the impact of Christ in their lives. This is what Paul meant by the language of worthiness in verse 10. It's not that the way we live makes us worthy to receive the gospel of Christ. It's it's really that the gospel of Christ should have an impact on our lives, an impact that is congruent, proportional, and appropriate to its truth. Paul prayed that the Colossian believers would know the gospel, the truth of God in Christ, so that they might walk true to Christ, true to his impact. In verses 10 to 12, Paul used four participles to describe that life, the life lived true to the Lord. A life lived in a manner worthy of the Lord, Paul said, is characterized by bearing fruit and increasing. These are the same words that we saw last Sunday in relation to faith, hope, and love. But here they are paired with the phrases, every good work and the knowledge of God. Just tuck that away for a moment. We'll come back to that. A life lived in a manner worthy of the Lord is also characterized by being strengthened with all power according to God's glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. In other words, it keeps going even when the going gets tough. It keeps walking even when the road gets wearying. In the face of hardship, it is empowered by God to continue. And lastly, as it endures as previewed in the previous statement, as it perseveres, a life lived in a manner worthy of the Lord is able to do so while rejoicing, giving thanks to the Father for all he is and all he's done amid the difficulties it encounters. Not in denial of the difficulties, not in ignorance of them or repression of them, but in their midst. This was Paul's vision for the Colossian believers. That as they came to know the truth of God, they would walk true to Christ, bearing the fruit of good works, increasing in the knowledge of God, and being strengthened to endure with joy as they gave thanks to God the Father. Now at this point, I have to ask all of you, 
Does this sound familiar? Does this sound like something that you've heard from me before? Maybe last Sunday? Does this sound a bit like the sermon that I delivered from this podium not a week ago? Well, if you think back to what we talked about last Sunday, perhaps you will start to see some similarities if you haven't caught them already. First off, the phrase, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, or the paraphrase that we're using, walking true to Christ, isn't this just another way of describing the impact of Christ? And what about bearing fruit in every good work? Aren't the good works we are called to do as Christians essentially about loving our neighbors? Isn't that what the rest of the Bible attests to? And increasing in the knowledge of God, isn't this closely related to growing in faith? Don't we grow to trust God by learning and remembering what God has done and his plans and his purposes for this world? And lastly, endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father. Isn't this just what hope looks like in action? Isn't this simply hope made visible, hope gone public, hope made tangible, made practical? So if you step back, couldn't we say that the phrases that Paul used to describe walking true to Christ, a life lived in a manner worthy of the Lord, couldn't we say that these phrases really just describe the impact of Christ? Don't they just describe what faith, hope, and love look like in action? That they are what faith, hope, and love look like practically in the life of a believer? What I'm getting at, brothers and sisters, is that it sounds to me like Paul was really praying for God to give the Colossians the very same things he had just thanked God for already giving to them. Sure, he used different words in our passage, and we don't see the words faith, hope, and love here, but we see their practical effects, don't we? It seems to me that Paul was really asking God for more of what he had already given to the Colossian believers, more faith, more hope, more love. If my analysis is correct, then we have to ask, why? Why was Paul asking for things the Colossian believers already had? Well, Paul, Paul didn't address this question directly, but we do get a big clue into his thinking in the rest of verses 12 to 14. Seemingly out of nowhere, in the second half of verse 12, having outlined his prayers for the Colossians, Paul launched into a reminder of what God the Father had done for the Colossian believers through Christ Jesus. The Father has qualified you, he said, to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Now, we might be tempted to gloss over this phrase as just a fancy way of saying, the Father has made it possible for you to be saved, or the Father has done what was necessary for you to have a place in his kingdom. And we'd probably get most of the meaning of verse 12, but we would end up missing the most important nuance of this verse, of this phrase. Notice how Paul referred to the Colossian believer's destiny in the eternal kingdom of God as the inheritance of the saints and light. The inheritance. The word inheritance is a key word associated with the exodus, the 40-year journey in which God led the newly liberated people of Israel through the wilderness and to the promised land of Canaan. 
Long before the Exodus, even before the people of Israel were uh, uh, a nation unto themselves, while they were still just a single family, God had made a promise to their patriarch, Abraham. God had promised that Abraham's descendants would be enslaved for a time. But at the right time, God would liberate them and give them the land of Canaan as an inheritance. And many centuries later, true to his word, after the people of Israel spent generations as slaves to Egypt, God sent a man named Moses to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. And by God's power, he did. But leading them to Canaan, that was a different story, wasn't it? Canaan was far from Egypt, meaning that between their liberation from Egypt and their conquest of Canaan, there remained a wilderness for the Israelites to cross, a journey, a sojourn for them to undertake before they could claim their inheritance. Moses was willing to lead them there as God empowered him with his presence, but as the Israelites made their way to Canaan, the memory of their deliverance from Egypt faded. And as it faded, so did their faith, hope, and love. As time passed, the Israelites succumbed to infighting, fueled by despair and doubt, so much so that the generation that left Egypt with Moses never actually made it to Canaan. All but two of them died in the wilderness. Though their children were able to enter the promised land, the rest of Moses' generation never finished their journey. Paul's use of the word inheritance as suddenly as it appears in verse 12, had to have been intentional. Hearing that word would have rung bells for any believer in Colossae who had spent even a little time in the scriptures. They would have recognized that Paul was making a parallel between what had happened initially with the Israelites and what was happening with them. Just as the people of Israel had been delivered from Egypt to share in inheriting Canaan, so the Colossian believers had been qualified by Christ's sacrificial death on the cross to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Not an inheritance comprised of land rights in the Middle East, but a place, a home, a future in the coming eternal kingdom of God. As Paul expanded in verses 13 and 14, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Though they were never enslaved to Egypt, the Colossian believers had been enslaved to darkness, to sin and to death and to Satan. It was in Satan's domain of spiritual darkness that they once walked, but because of the redemption, the forgiveness of sins that they had in Christ Jesus, they had been transferred to Christ's coming kingdom. A transfer Christ will complete when he returns to fulfill all God's promises. But because Christ had not yet returned, there remained for the Colossian believers, just as there had for the people of Israel, a sojourn for them to undertake. A sojourn through the rest of their earthly lives. And this sojourn required spiritual wisdom and understanding to navigate and all endurance and patience with joy to complete. A few days, a few weeks, a few months, or even a few years worth of faith, hope, and love, this would be insufficient for the journey of a lifetime. 
You see, brothers and sisters, as our very own Becca Singley reminded me during my preparation, faith, hope, and love are verbal nouns. They have to be acted out to be fully real, to fully exist. Faith, hope, and love are active and practical or nothing at all. And for their faith, hope, and love to continue to be active, the Colossians needed to see the glory of God in Jesus Christ again and again and again. They needed to be filled with the knowledge of his will, not just once or twice in a glancing way, but again and again and again, deeper and deeper and deeper. So Paul prayed for the Colossians to receive more of what they already had. As wonderful as it was to see faith, hope, and love in their midst, it was even more important for the Colossians to endure and to persevere in them, to continue in the truth and knowledge and wisdom of the gospel. Paul, ever the pastor, did not want to see the Colossians fall away from Christ as Moses' generation of Israelites fell in the wilderness because of their unbelief. Though they had initially responded to God's miraculous deliverance from Egypt with faith, hope, and love, they did not continue in these things. So they fell in the wilderness, never making it to their destination and never finishing their sojourn. So Paul prayed for the Colossian believers to continue seeing and knowing and understanding the glory of God in Christ Jesus, his glorious purposes for this world and promises for his future so that they might endure and persevere, and mature, and grow in their good works of love, and in their faith in God, and in their hope in his promises, and brothers and sisters, this is why the Shiksalab crater is ultimately insufficient as a metaphor for the Christian life. While it succeeds in reminding us of the ultimate impact Christ makes on our lives, it is unable to capture this dimension of what it means to follow Christ. It takes more than one collision. It takes more than one counter, encounter, more than one moment of clarity leading to one moment of confession. That might be where it begins. But it takes many more experiences of the glory of God in Christ Jesus, many more glimpses of his grace, many more times of seeing and knowing and understanding his truth spread out over the course of our lives. And sometimes these times of seeing and knowing and understanding are incredibly moving. Like getting hit by a seven mile asteroid. But most times, brothers and sisters, these experiences of Christ's glory are quieter and gentler and softer and, dare I say, more mundane maybe even without much emotion or feeling attached to them. But they are no less real, brothers and sisters, and they are no less necessary. And this is why the Yarlung Zangpo Grand Canyon works better as a metaphor for the Christian life. Because as much as we might like to be changed from the inside out in one moment, in an instant, in a flash of blazing cosmic wonder, the Christian life is more often like a winding river eroding the earth of our unbelief, 
working its way through the landscape of our hearts, lifting away the silt of sin and the gravel of guilt, carrying in its current layers of idolatry and hypocrisy, coursing against the bedrock of pride and hardness of heart. Though punctuated by moments of rock-splitting clarity, most Christian growth is gradual and repetitive. It's not so much about a single transformative collision as it is about many formative encounters. It's not so much about huge changes accomplished in a moment as it is about small changes building on each other over time. It's not so much about perfection overnight as it is about progress over a lifetime. It's not so much about impact as it is about erosion Even those who have experienced dramatic changes in their lives due to the impact of Christ would affirm that most of the change in their lives comes about by the steady, unceasing, erosive effect of Christ. The erosive effect of Christ. That doesn't sound very pleasant, does it? (laughs) The erosive effect of Christ. That sounds more like an environmental hazard report about beachfront property. You know, it sounds a little more like what my dentist was talking about last time I saw him. (laughs) The erosive effect of Christ, the erosion of the heart. These these are not the best sermon titles, are they? They're, They're not the catchiest of metaphors. But perhaps the biggest problem with them is that this metaphor is, it's difficult to relate to. Erosion, by its nature, just isn't something that we witness day to day, is it? It takes place on a temporal scale that is simply beyond our grasp. But thankfully, our passage offers us its own metaphor, its own metaphor that captures exactly what we're trying to get at here, a metaphor that is relatable and close to our experience, whether directly or indirectly, and it was, as we mentioned, one of Paul's favorite metaphors, the metaphor of walking, walking on a journey, walking on a sojourn. The Christian life is like a river carving its way through the earth, but it is also like a journey, a sojourn wherein we must walk to get where we want to go. And just as the steps we take in a sojourn are a conscious choice as we consider where we've come from and where we're going, so the Christian life is made up of many steps taken in faith, hope, and love, consciously and intentionally propelled by our convictions about who God is and what his purpose is for the world in Christ Jesus. With each step we take, we let go of past ways of living, past idolatries, past attachments. And with each step we take, we move deeper into faith, look farther into hope, and reach more freely out in love. But this sojourn is difficult, isn't it, brothers and sisters? Back when I was in college, I tried to get into running. This was something that I was unfamiliar with, Growing up in Indiana, where the land is flat and the people are unhurried, (laughs) I really didn't know what this whole running thing was about, but I tried it. I gave it the old college try, and so I spent about two weeks trying my best to run as frequently as I could. And eventually, I decided, you know what, I'm going to move this indoors to an indoor track on our campus. 
and I was starting to feel really good about myself as I was making my way around this indoor track. I'd really struggled the nights before running the distances that I had set out, but here I was running lap after lap on this track, and I remembered in my, uh, from my middle school days that four laps around a track equal one mile. And so I was feeling really great about myself until I looked up and noticed some of the signs on the walls of this indoor track. And one sign stood out among them all, and it said, this indoor track is a half-sized track. <laughs> you know, all my progress was instantly cut in half. I felt like I'd gotten nowhere, and really I hadn't, because if you think about it, you end up in the same place where you start, right? <laughs> Ever since that day, I never tried running again. <laughs> Till now, it's still something that I can't say that I enjoy doing. And sometimes it's not really enjoyable, this Christian journey, is it? Sometimes it is hard, it is difficult. Sometimes it, it feels straighter than we could have imagined. Sometimes straight up a sheer rock face, straight up the side of a mountain. And it's really narrow at times, isn't it? Impossibly narrow, narrow enough to turn your ankle or to lose your way if you aren't paying attention. Too narrow to accommodate all the baggage that we'd like to bring along. There are times when the journey feels so long, when the sojourn feels so difficult that we feel tempted to stop, to settle, to rest, and even, even to turn back from all the effort. We decide this is far enough. We've gone far enough from home. We're close enough to where we want to be. We've been faithful enough, haven't we? We've loved enough. We've got enough hope. And we might even protest. Why is this so hard? Why are there so many challenges? Why are there so many hurdles? Why does he ask so much of me? Is it really worth all this where we're going? I mean, where are we going? And as we settle, or as we smolder, sometimes we stop moving altogether. Sometimes we find ourselves living at the foot of a mountain, a mountain of faith, hope, and love. Christ has been calling us to climb. But in those moments, as we're about to fall into the deep sleep of worldliness and bitterness and cultural Christianity, sometimes we experience grace upon grace, don't we? Sometimes God breaks through. The Spirit wakes us up. And we open our eyes as if for the first time, and, and we see as if for the first time the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In his mercy and in his grace, he comes looking for us. He finds us. He throws open the door of our tent, crashes his way in, and looks us in the eye and reminds us of all he is, of all he is doing in this world, and of all he promises to do for us, all he has for us on the other side of the mountain, on the other side of this wilderness. And we feel ourselves able to look past the pain and to rise higher than the struggle, and we feel energized to follow him and to take the steps of faith, hope, and love that he is leading us to take as we see more than we have ever seen before. And over the course of many such encounters with God, we learn to leave the doors of our tents open for him, don't we? We learn to wait at the door for him to reveal himself. We learn to prepare our tables for him, to make room for him to stay, even to ask of him more of himself 
to ask for more of him until we find ourselves in the habit of seeking and abiding, of abiding and of seeking, and of him seeking and abiding with us. And we see his glory, and we let him turn our eyes to him again and again and again, and our walk with Christ becomes steadier. Not quite easier, but more resolved, more relational, as we walk deeper in faith and higher in hope and wider in love and over mountains and through the wilderness, we learn to walk by the light of his fire as he forges a way through the darkness. We learn to take shelter in the shadow of his cloud as he leads us through our scorching days. And we are drawn ever forward by the beauty and the goodness and the worthiness of his glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, it was this that Paul prayed for the Colossian believers. They had begun their sojourn with Christ. They had begun walking with him in faith, hope, and love, but Paul knew the pull of worldliness. He knew the pull of ego and pride and self-centeredness and self-righteousness. So Paul prayed for the Colossians that they would be floored with, that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding that they might not give up when the going got tough, but continue in faith, hope, and love so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. And brothers and sisters of PBCC, we would do well to pray for ourselves and for one another the very same things. We have been liberated from the domain of darkness and we await the completion of our transfer to the kingdom of God's beloved son. But in the meantime, there is a sojourn for us to walk. We are the sojourners of Christ, called out of the world to be set apart for his kingdom. It is a journey of many steps, of many days and weeks and months and years and hopefully decades of faith, hope, and love. It's ours for, it's for us to walk. I hope that this comes to us as an encouragement. Perhaps some of us needed the reminder that this is a journey, that this is a sojourn of many steps. Perhaps some of us needed the reminder that this tension that we're feeling between what God has already done for us in Christ and what he has not yet fulfilled for us in Christ, that this tension is normal, that we're not supposed to feel quite comfortable here on earth, face masks or not. Perhaps some of us needed to hear that we're not finished, that God's not finished with us. At the beginning of 2020, when I had my final session of therapy to treat my mental illness, I was so relieved. It was, I was so relieved to hear my therapist say, well, Eugene, I, I think we've gone as far as we need to go with this therapy for your PTSD. We don't have to schedule a session for next week. I mean, I was cured. I was fixed. I was finished. The therapy had done its work. It had had its impact, and I really did feel like I had been hit by an asteroid. Then I woke up the next morning, and though huge emotional blockages had been removed and psychological scars had begun to heal and my relationship with God had started to take a new dimension to it, I quickly discovered that all that therapy had really just cleared the way for me to deal with other anxieties and other insecurities, other destructive habits and idolatries and perhaps more mundane but nevertheless real struggles. 
The real relief came when God reminded me that even though my therapy was over, that his work in me wasn't. He hadn't canceled our next sessions. In some ways, the real work he wanted to do in me had only just begun. And that came to me as such a relief because it meant I didn't have to be perfect today, right now in this moment. Instead, even my imperfection could be seen as simply a step in this sojourn of faith, hope, and love. The Christian life is a sojourn, brothers and sisters. Christ's effect on our lives is impactful, but it is also slow and is also steady. So we're going to need to see more of God in Christ Jesus. We're going to need to see more of his grace, more of his love, and more of his wonder, more of his majesty in our lives. We're going to need to see it in big ways and in small ways and loud ways and in quiet ways and ways that fill our minds and ways that touch our hearts and ways that give to our hands good works to do and our feet the willingness to do them. And on the other side of this life, on the other side of this sojourn, there awaits an inheritance, an eternal kingdom with places at the king's table reserved for you and for me. So brothers and sisters of PBCC, let's, let's make Paul's prayer for the Colossian believers our prayer for ourselves. We can use Paul's words Father, fill us with the knowledge of your will in Christ Jesus. Let us walk true to Christ in all the expressions of faith, hope, and love. That can be our prayer. That should be our prayer. Or we can use our own words, our own metaphors, if you have one handy. However we do it, though, let's bring this prayer to the Lord. Bring this prayer to God as Paul brought it on the Colossians' behalf. And let's do that now right here, before we go into the Lord's Supper. Now this benediction. As you go into this week, into all that God has ordained for you to encounter and experience, as we all go through this journey together, may we all be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. May God be with you, bless you, be well.